This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I've been looking forward to our discussion for some time with Ben Frank. Uh, ben is, first of all, a friend. is somebody I've known for a number of years. Seems like probably back to, oh, I'd say somewhere around... Um, the Dinosaur Age, um, Ben and I first uh, connected. He is the author of uh, Clara's Journey, The Scattered Tribe, A Travel Guide to Jewish Europe, Four Editions, A Travel Guide to Jewish Russia and Ukraine, and A Travel Guide to the Jewish Caribbean and South America. Noticing a trend there? Uh, he is quite accomplished, having worked as a reporter. He's also worked in the field of public relations. I've known Ben, as I mentioned, for a number of years, Nice to speak with you, Ben. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm doing very, very well, as a matter of fact. Good. You know, there's so many different areas where we can go in discussion, but it's also interesting that we're having this chat at uh, this time of the year with the Holy Days coming, uh, to uh, literally, uh, as right. we are speaking. You know, Clara's War, which is the second book, as I understand, from the Clara Trilogy, um, it has been published, uh, for folks who have not heard us speak before, a little bit of background on the trilogy. Sure. Um, Clara's War is the second book. The first one, as you rightly mentioned, was Clara's Journey. Um, it's based on a family story, actually a couple of families, not just one, uh, in which, you know, Families tell stories, and stories become important in our lives because it's the tie with past generations. And uh, Clara really is based on a, a true story. Clara, by the way, with a K. Um, Clara was my aunt. And as many things times happen, we don't talk to our, you know, elders, so to speak, until, you know, it's too late or until they pass. But we do hear snippets. And those snippets can make fantastic stories and at the same time remind us of the history is, that has passed. Because we have to learn, you know, the famous saying, we have to learn from the past so we don't make the same mistakes over and over again. Right. So that's why I wrote, I'm, I'm really writing a trilogy because it's based on different families. What was, what was this like for you, um, putting this together? I mean, not just from the work standpoint, but what this meant, I guess, emotionally for you. Um, well, in a number of cases, it was a little bit hard because some of the people that I wrote about, uh, are gone now, um, mm -hmm. and I knew them, and I and I was close to them. You know, in those days, families lived close together. Um, I think my aunts all lived within two blocks of each other, uh, three of them, and um, so there was a family unity, a family tie, and um, you know, people got together. People went to 
their houses, let's say, on Sunday afternoon, coffee, cake, those kind of things, or went out. Uh, although I think there was less going out and more at home. So it was emotionally uh, kind of reminding me of, you know, my younger days. Um, and I had a lot of cousins, and we had big fam. You know, people had big families then. And uh, there's so many stories that I that I put into Clara's War, but I did it from a historical point of view. Um, so, and when you really think about the history that has gone on in the last 80 years, you know this this just past September 1st, we uh, we marked the 80th anniversary of World War II, which you know was the most horrific war in human history. Mm-hmm. So when you put all that together, family, family experiences, people who went who went through, you know, the Holocaust and World War II, um, you really have emotion, and you're right to bring that up because it's it's there. I think sometimes it helps you write it, you write the story, and that's what I try to do in Clara's War. In doing the work, and you know getting into the whole detail uh, associated with this. I also would be remiss if I didn't ask you, on a personal level, what was Clara like? Oh, that's a good point. Uh, And I'm glad you asked that. That's a great question. Um, Clara was the matron of the family. You know, every family has, many families, have one person who stands out and kind of quote-unquote, I'm putting it in quote, rules the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was that type of person. And basically, this is Clara from Clara's Journey. Um, basically, her experiences, I mean, traveling through uh, Siberia in the midst of a, the Russian Civil War alone. Imagine a 17-year-old young kid going alone today across Russia in the middle of a war. And in fact, going to Japan, where uh, she was probably the only, you know, um, European gal walking the streets of Yokohama. I mean, this is frightening. How did a kid like that get across a continent, two continents, and then find uh, her father? Well, that's the basis of the story. But she ruled the roost. I mean, she, if, if a nephew got out of line, boy, she called him down and she told her sisters what to do and things of that kind. She was a strong person, yet kind in many ways. Now, that's the Clara of the first uh, novel. If I may go on, the Clara of the second is, is different somewhat. It's a different story, um, but they're all related. Um and Clara of the second novel uh, is a young kid also caught up in World War II. But this is different. Uh, she's married, and then there comes a terrible separation. And the Clara of the, uh, the second um, novel, Clara's War, is, is really a different kind of person. Um, her experiences were, were different. Loneliness, uh, danger, you know, that type of thing where she was alone and had and a child, her child was born while she was alone. Um, so you, you have different characters, but it all comes down to the same thing, the fight for survival. 
And that's what, what life uh, in many ways is all about, especially, gosh, if you go through a thing like World War II. Mm. We're talking with Ben Frank on our program. Uh, ben is an author. He's talking with us about Clara's War, which is the second book in the Clara trilogy. And he's joined us by phone on our program. I'm Bob Salter. I guess one of the thoughts I had heading into this discussion today is, what exactly do you hope that those who read these works, what it is they're going to take away from it? I, I think that when, you know, we face challenges, Many of us meet those challenges, and I think we all have to try. I think we all try to meet the challenge down deep. And I think that um, in life you have to just pick yourself up. You know, if you're knocked down, pick yourself up, you know, the way the song goes and start all over again um, and move on and and fight. You know, sometimes you have to fight for survival. So I, I think people will take away that. And then I think uh, family unity uh, struggled, you know, to keep together. That that comes through, in especially in Clara's war. I mean, you know, she was alone, separated from her husband uh, with a young daughter and and really fought and struggled to get back to her husband. And all this history is going around her at the same time. So I, I hope that people come away with it with a feeling that uh, you know life can be tough, but we can overcome difficulties, even tragic difficulties. We can overcome them. Hmm. That that's what I really thought people would like to take away from it. At the same time, it's a good story. I mean, it's a story, especially of you know danger, separation, love, all that goes into you human life today. And does the story have a special significance at this this time of the year? Well, number one, we have the the anniversary of, um, you know, World War II, which was tragic. I mean, uh, 70 to 80 million people, you know, murdered, died. And, um, but we've moved on. Hopefully we've moved on to a better world. I think that's what the holidays, you know, we think about, and we think about our faith, you know, faith and faith. Um, definitely she had to have faith to overcome what she did, and that's what I tried to tell in this, the story, you know, in the book. But faith, that, you know, and in a holiday time, um, that's what I think life's all about. What surprised you as you did the work for this book? <laughs> Harder than I thought. <laughs> that, that's a good question, Bob. Uh, yeah, you know, writing is tough. It's not, you know, I, I mean, there's great satisfaction at the end because, you know, you start with blank pages. All that is true, you know, and and you end up or you hope you end up um with uh over 200 or 250 300 pages that's a good story um i mean it's like you know 
I, I'm not knocking anybody because I, I think everybody has to try. But, you know, I, I once had a, an author come, come in and say, you know, to my office in those days, and we talked about that earlier, um, and say, you know, everybody talks about writing a, a novel, you know, or a book. And he said, um, but I did it. And I kept thinking of that all the time because it's, it's total discipline. It's tough. It's not easy. Um, but if you're dedicated to it, you keep going. That's, I think, was the hard part. Hard part is just sitting down every day and starting. Once you start, then you're okay. You know, you get past the hurdle. It's like anything else. You know, the basketball player, he drills and drills and drills and gets on the floor every day. I'm talking about basketball, you know, trains, trains, trains. And I think that's what life's about. You have to have that discipline. Ben Frank is talking with us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. We're going to take a pause in our discussion. We'll come back, talk more with you here on The Fan. Ben Frank joins us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. One of the things that's interesting in um, this publication, too, is you talk about, um, and I'd like you to talk for a minute or two here about the Anders Army. Okay. Sure. What was that like? Well, you see, uh, by the way, that's why part of this book, if I may say so, it's the untold story of a lot of historical beds that we don't know about or we don't read about or are uncommon. Uh, the end, you know, uh, when World War Two started, you know, Russia and Germany divided Poland. And in the Russian zone, the Russians took, oh, I would say uh, several hundred thousand at least, Polish army prisoners, you know, there's the famous Catherine Massacre, and they, they brought them back to Russia, Siberia, and the camps. And at the same time, um, a lot of people, civilians, fled, and they fled eastward. They fled to Russia to get away from the Germans. Um, you know, Russia was still, you know, uh, at least a, a safe haven for a while, they thought. But you know, Russia and Germany existed, you know, together for two years till 1941. And Germany, of course, you know, a sneak attack uh, really uh, hit Russia very hard on June 22nd, 1941. And that began the struggle between Russia as our ally, by the way, United States and Britain, um, you know, against Nazi Germany. But meanwhile, you had all these Poles who, soldiers and civilians who had fled east, most of them in uh, POW camps, prisoners, and uh, Russia was really struggling at the first and the beginning of the war to beat back the German advance. So they had to free the Poles because now they needed, you know, people, army, men to fight in the army against the Germans. So they freed the Poles from the camps. But the Poles wanted, didn't want any part of Russia again because, of course, they had turned against them. So they formed an army, and it was under the command of General Anders. And uh, Stalin, in a way, had to let them go to, you know, leave Russia because the British needed forces also to fight the Germans. So this Anders army was formed um, in the east, in Russia. And left Russia, really unbelievably left Russia, went to Iran, uh, went through Iran, Iraq, and they got to Palestine. Um, there are many Jews in that army, because obviously Jews weren't going to 
uh, wanted to get out of Russia also in that way, and they didn't want to be captured by the Germans, so they joined the Anders Army. But when they got to Palestine, which was already being settled and advanced as a future Jewish state, they left the Anders Army and joined the British Army. And the Anders Army went on to fight, you know, on the side of the Allies in World War II. So I tell this story because it involves Clara and Clara's war, and that's where the separation started that make this book, I believe, a really unbelievable story. Mm. I hope I didn't take too long to no, explain that. No, not at all. But it, but it's a little complicated. But it, but in the in the context of World War Two, it wasn't much, but it helped defeat the Germans, and that was, I think, you know what what was important. Where will part three of the trilogy take us, or can you reveal? Yeah, I can reveal it because interesting in both books. And this, I think, creates a lot of interest. And, uh, you know, in families, there's a lot of sibling rivalry. And that was one of the themes in Clara's journey, and it certainly uh, continued in Clara's war. Um, Without giving everything away, Clara had a brother. um, And those two weren't exactly uh, on the same page, so to speak. Um, And yet there were blood ties that kept them in a way together and yet separated them. So I think it's, that was a fantastic story. And it's also based on a family story. So in a way, you know, family stories make great novels and because they're, they're true. I mean, you don't know every detail, but you, you figure it out. And that's what I did with Clara's War. I mean, I didn't know everything and a lot of it, I had to understand the characters and the people involved, but I think it came out to a good story. Mm. This experience, did this change you? Yeah, in many ways, because I think I appreciate the more now, you know, the relatives that some of them are past, and I think about them, and I think we all do. I mean, depends how close they are or they were to you. Um, but I think if you remember those that went before you, um, try to tell you something about the world, I think it strengthens you. Mm. Very interesting discussion, and I appreciate the time of Ben Frank, who has joined us on our program. Uh, Ben talking with us about Clara's War, World War II historical novel, the sequel to Clara's Journey, and uh, part of that Clara trilogy that Ben shared information with us on. Ben, thank you. Thank you, Bob. And you be well. And I appreciate it, and have all the best to you. And the best of the holidays to you, too. Thank you, you too. We're joined in a discussion I've been looking forward to for some time. This is Hispanic Heritage Month through the 15th of October. It's an interesting time because it's a celebration of contributions that Hispanics have made to this country's culture and history, and that is an understatement, to say the least. I'm very pleased that uh, we have a gentleman who is joining us in our program. It's going to provide some interesting perspective. Um, He is an an author and a critic. His name is Roberto Tejada. Uh, He is joining us also to talk with us about uh, some information that's contained in a publication entitled Still Nowhere in an Empty Vastness. 
one of the more intriguing, interesting, and perhaps deep titles we've ever had for publications on this program. It's nice, <laughs> nice to have you join us. Very glad to be here. I love that. I just absolutely love that title. Every time I look at it, and I'm looking at it literally on the uh, table in front of me right now, because it sets my mind like on fire because I start going in so many different directions. Is that the reaction you get? It is, and that's why I love those words together. And I wish I could take credit for the title, but it is from a wonderful essay, a beautiful essay by the late American poet William Bronk, who traveled to the Mesoamerican ruins in Mexico, including Palenque and Tikal, and wrote in one of those essays on Palenque, the occupation of space, about this feeling of uh, still nowhere in an empty vastness. And I think it was these essays in which Bronk, as an American citizen, is getting a sense of sort of the, the absolute minuscule space that he occupied when you look at history in the very long view and when you look at cross-cultural connections in that way as well. This project, what was this like for you? In a sense, it was autobiography by other means. In a sense, these are essays that sort of track some of my obsessions and passions over the last 27 years. So some of the essays point back to 1987, 1988, when I moved to Mexico City and lived there for the next 11 years. And so it kind of traces some of those concerns to the present. But when I was organizing the book uh, two years ago, it seemed to me that many of these curiosities and compassions that I have in terms of thinking about writers and artists from the United States who traveled to Mexico or Cuba and vice versa, Latin Americans who have been in the United States, it seemed to me very pressing at this particular moment in 2016 when I was putting the book together, insofar as there was so much rhetoric nationally, particularly in terms of one of our candidates, who is now the president, in terms of anti-immigrant sentiment. And so I felt that in terms of representation of Latinos, Latinx peoples, and Hispanics, that it was important to give these kinds of perspectives over the long view of this very complex relationship between the United States and Latin America, particularly Mexico and Cuba. In, in a way, you know, one of the first thoughts, listening to what you just said and thinking about some of the uh, materials contained in this project, a question that just has to be, I think, reverberating in uh, the heads of most of us is, how on earth did we get to this point? Well, I think that's a very good question, although I think one of the leitmotifs of the book is that, in a sense, some of this sentiment has always already been there. So perhaps in less extreme moments, although the very fact that the United States and its geography was based on the U.S. invasion of Mexico in, in the mid-1800s, uh, gives a sense of some of the rhetoric that, in, that involved the United States in looking at Mexico. So in one of the essays, I, I look at some of the writers and artists who went to Mexico right during the 
U.S. invasion of Mexico. And I include some of those images, say, James Walker, some of his prints of the storming of Chapultepec. It was a time in which there was the fact of U.S. expansionism and the ideology of manifest destiny. And in order to complete that expansion, rhetoric about the unruliness of Mexico and its need for order or to bring civilization to Mexico sort of led to a border skirmish um, that then led President Polk uh, to send troops to the Rio Grande and then later to Veracruz. So we're here to answer your question in a sense because there's always been this vexed relationship of uh, one in terms of geography, but also one in terms of the imagination. Mm. And is there a special significance this year when we look at, you know, what I mentioned in introducing our discussion today, Hispanic Heritage Month? There is. I mean, I think, had you asked me maybe two or three years ago about Hispanic Heritage Month, month myself and others, I think, are somewhat skeptical of the idea that for, you know, a certain period of a certain amount of weeks, that attention is given to the contributions of Hispanics and Latinos and Latinx peoples in the United States. However, at this point, I actually think that it's urgent that we have positive and um, depictions of these contributions and media representations. So, you know, I follow different newspapers, particularly, and I've been looking at the Los Angeles Times, which has really been going out of its way to create these small video documentaries and small features on all kinds of Latinx peoples in the United States, not just uh, politicians or lawmakers or cultural figures, but those who occupy very important spaces in terms of our labor force and bringing a kind of vibrancy to uh, even smaller towns in in the United States. Mm. What surprised you most as you were putting this project together? I mean, I think what surprised me most was that this idea that there are these moments that are kind of uncanny insofar as I had no intention of seeing these kind of patterns until I was putting the uh, essays together. But, for example, um, there's an essay on the Elian Gonzalez saga of the year 2000. And thinking about the ways in which, for example, the United States thinks about the child, for example, in the figure of Elian Gonzalez, all the sort of media blitz and the saga that took place was, in a sense, thinking about saving this, the, the boy delivered from the sea as a kind of subject for democracy or sort of how to save him from uh, communist Cuba. Now we're seeing the kind of the, the investment in the child as we see in the sort of the cages on the border right now, a different kind of relationship to children. So what surprises me is that there are these patterns, these historical patterns that on, on the one hand shouldn't be surprising, but when you see them in sort of proximity or in the long view of history, um, they are quite striking. This is Bob Solter. We're in a discussion with Roberto Tejada, talking with him about uh, some of the effort that has gone into the project still nowhere in an empty vastness. Um, he has interesting perspective on a number of areas that he is sharing with us on our program this Sunday morning. We move into the home stretch of our program here on The Fan this Sunday morning. What are you hoping that those who will explore this project, explore this work, 
hoping that they will learn from the experience, take away from it. Yes, on the one hand, I mean, I, I, I like telling stories, so um, I would love for readers who have a chance to look at the book to learn about contemporary and modern authors, writers, who have really created this Pan-American map of U.S. American writers who went to Mexico during, for example, the period of the Mexican Revolution and thereafter, uh, or in the case of someone like uh, a contemporary artist like Pablo Elguera, who is from Mexico but has, has been living in the United States for the, for the last 20, 25 years. I guess I'm interested in how these stories can tell us something about what it means to be in relation and to think about U.S. citizenship in relation to the Americas, because there's been a long history of U.S. involvement or relationships with the countries south of the border, and that these are important stories to know so that we can inform the present from that past. Mm. And also, I guess, just to kind of put that information into the minds you know, some might even say into at least discussion surrounding the history books. That's right. Um, and in a sense, because I really do believe that, that culture, art, poetry, travel, writing, really gets us close to what it means to be someone, to be encountering someone else. And so in a sense, we can look at history from the long view or from the aerial view, from the bird's eye view, and it looks one way, but when we get at the ground view, when we think about how individuals have reacted or responded, and I often think of uh, the Italian writer Italo Calvino, who talked about the negative mirror, that very often these countries, Mexico and Cuba, other countries from Latin America, are the negative mirror in which the United States projects its fantasies, its desires, its fears. And this is important for the present so that we understand that this is the ways in which um, cultures in an encounter uh, activate this kind of imagination. Is there, and I, I believe you're answering this with what you're saying, but I guess I'm not just saying is there, but specifically how. Mm -hmm. Could this country, the United States, and Latin America be better neighbors? Well, I think one practical way of being a better neighbor. And I always think about one of the definitions of the neighbor is that it's a kind of intolerable intensity, right? Or an unbearable intensity. And that leads to a kind of sense of distrust or aggression. But one of the themes in the book, I think, is this idea, both practical and maybe metaphorical, of translation. That is, if we think about the publishing industry in the United States, unlike the publishing industry in other countries, the, it's, it, the fact that the U.S. only publishes 3% of its titles per year that are translations from another language sort of tells us something about the way in which we are predisposed or not predisposed to learning about other cultures and the languages in which they are inhabited. So I think one way of 
becoming better neighbors is really to find those traces of experience in culture, in art, in, in poetry, uh, have them circulate between the two cultures, ideally to have works translated into English, uh, of which now there is quite a, uh, a resurgence again of interest in translation. And I think that's one way of thinking about being in relation. What I'd like to think of is it's a kind of that unfamiliarity of the neighbor is actually a vitality and that that's an important resource. Do you think it's realistic that we could ever get to that point? I think that the, that the difference I think between a kind of optimism and hope is that there, the intent is a kind of practice and that, in, that intention leads us to a kind of an ethical position. So I don't know if we'll ever get there because I'm not sure where there might necessarily be, but in the, in the actual engagements, or I would say the, the actual engagements are no small thing. You know, maybe I didn't ask you something that I should have earlier. I was thinking about this as you were answering that. The idea of um, Latino culture in terms of art and literature and having a cultural relevance, um, I guess to put it in blunt terms, maybe terms that people can digest uh, in this country. Is that something that um, it's an effort to get really considered at a time other than, you know, when somebody is drawing attention to it with this designation? And I, I believe you may have even some issues or problems with, you know, the term Hispanic Heritage Month. I'd like you to talk about that as well. So I think th it can be an effort. Um, one of the artist writers who I discuss in my book is the contemporary uh, Los Angeles wordsmith and performance artist, Harry Gamboa Jr., mm -hmm. who was part of a, a very important collective during the 19, late 1970s, 1980s called ASCO, and has since had a very... Um, robust trajectory as a writer and artist himself. He has a sort of informal email list in which he's constantly sort of um, watching the media representation of Latinos in the United States. And it really is um, remarkable that if we're slightly distracted we begin to see that even in places like Hollywood representation, that the, that the representation of Latinos is, is actually um, not representative of the demographics in this country. So I think to answer your question is that it is important, even in something like Hispanic um, Heritage Month, uh, to address and rethink to what degree are Latinos being represented, how are they being represented, and what can we do to bring attention to the sort of the diversity of those kinds of either art practices or writing, um, how, how Latinos are represented on, in film and television. And in this way, the conversation takes place just beyond a short 
uh, span during the year. How much of that conversation should, and I'm going to use the word should, also take place within the formal education system in this country? I think that's a very good question, which is why, you know, thinking about the curriculum and thinking about syllabuses and how these works enter into even primary education is fundamental. So, for example, I am very happy and proud to serve on the board of uh, an organization called Writers in the Schools, and which has a very strong representation here in Houston. And what we do is we send living, practicing poets and writers into the school system from K through 12, and, you know, over a period of sometimes a week or longer, these visits bring different kinds of writings that these students may not have been exposed to in their lesson plans, for example, at the, at the, at the uh, K through eight level, for example. So I think it is very important. And sometimes these, we have, uh, uh, many of our, uh, writers who go into the schools are PhD or MFA students from the University of Houston, where I teach some of the, many of them are, are Latinos or Latinx writers. And so already there's a kind of, um, interaction that takes place very early at that level. And I, I think that is a very key, uh, question that you brought up. Mm. The idea of, um, perhaps the phrasing being Latinx, Latinx Heritage Month instead of how I've referred to it. Was that something you would prefer? I, uh, I, I, I do prefer Latinx. It's, it's in part because it's what the youth today are using, and it's a way of getting around the, the gendered uh, qualifiers of Latino or Latina. Right. And it, the X opens up to gender fluidity. It, it opens up the possibility of the variability of different kinds of Latinx peoples, you know, from, um, from different parts of, of, of Latin America in the United States, so that the primarily, if we look in the 1970s and 1980s, we were looking at Hispanics primarily from uh, Mexican-Americans in the Southwest and in Chicago and Puerto Ricans in the East Coast. But with all the variations of the Latin American diaspora, we're now seeing a, a very young generation interested in sort of claiming that space for themselves. And I think it's an important one to acknowledge. Mm. I would also say that Latinx is uh, an important denominator that, they, that this younger generation is using because I think that they've seen how, for example, the indigenous element of of Hispanic or of Latino had been excluded, or the Afro-Latin American presence has been excluded. And so that X, I'd like to think of as a kind of variable, or uh, which includes is inclusive as opposed to exclusive. Hmm. Most interesting discussion, Roberto Tejada, uh, talking with us on our program publication, is still nowhere in an empty vastness fascinating uh, collection and he's shared an awful lot with us in our chat hopefully provided some inspiration for folks to explore this and also to do some thinking along the lines of some of the things that 
you have shared with us. I want to thank you. Certainly wish you the best with your work. Thank you so much, Bob. Wonderful discussion. For me as well. The Sports Edge at 7.30 this Sunday morning follows the NFL preview, which happens at 7 o'clock. JJ in the morning line at 8.30. And at 9 o'clock, football Sunday action. Malusis and Deal here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.